if I was sending a message, it would be that just in terms of the different portions of society that I've had the privilege and honor to work with over the last 25 years, you know, whether it's indigenous communities, whether it's the park gods, or whether it's interacting with people here in the city, that's what gives me hope because you see their commitment and their passion and imagination. And that's, that's what keeps us going. Welcome to the Wild Foundation Podcast, Voices of Wilderness. Through the stories our guests share, you'll learn about how we can and must protect wilderness for a healthy future. We hope to leave you a little more inspired to speak out, take action, make a difference, and find solutions to the biodiversity and climate crises. Let us take you on a journey through the different aspects of wilderness, its different stories, approaches, and definitions in various parts of the world with the people who work every day to fight for its protection. In this episode, meet Rob Wallace, Senior Conservation Scientist at the Wildlife Conservation Society, WCS for short. Rob has been working in Bolivia for 30 years with a large number of partners and more than 70 impressive colleagues, including local communities and indigenous peoples, to conserve their natural areas and safeguard their biodiversity. What motivates him to work for the conservation of Bolivian landscapes? What difficulties does he encounter in his day-to-day work? And what advice does he have for all of you to take action? All right. Let's dive in to find out more about Rob's daily life as a conservation scientist in this beautiful, wonderful landscape of Bolivia, surrounded by its awesome inhabitants. Okay, Rob, we are so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining Voices of Wilderness. It's an honor and a pleasure to be speaking with you and to dive into more about your work and your passion for the environment and conservation. Why don't we just kick this off strong and give the audience a little bit of an introduction on yourself and what you work so hard to protect. Thank you very much, Jackie. My name is is Rob Wallace, and uh, I'm a senior conservation scientist at the Wildlife Conservation Society. I've been working in Bolivia for 30 years or so, and Bolivia is an amazing country at the heart of South America, And it has an extraordinary diversity of different types of landscape, of different types of habitat, of course, culturally as well, really, really diverse and has a very, very interesting wildlife and biodiversity. And so, yeah, basically, I've been based here for the last 30, 35 years and uh, work in together with all sorts of different local partners that we'll hear about during the podcast. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to dive in and to hear about this incredibly uni- unique place that you work in. So you mentioned it has a hugely vast array of, of wildlife, and it's just this kind of epicenter for very unique things in conservation. In terms of wilderness, how does wilderness factor into to where you work? Yeah, so Bolivia is a, it's a landlocked country. But it's a very large country, so it's about the size of Peru or Colombia, but it has a much lower human population density. So there are large areas of wilderness with very few people, and that, of course, is really good for wildlife and biodiversity. 
And so, you know, I've spent the last 30 years working in the Amazon basin, but also in the high Andes. And those are kind of the two main areas that I have been working in. And so you have this extraordinary altitudinal range. And so one of the places that I have focused a lot of work in the last 25 years is in and around Madidi National Park. And Madidi National Park is, an, is a protected area. It's quite a large protected area in Bolivia. But it's very special because it has a unique altitudinal range. It has almost a 6,000 meter altitudinal range, which there aren't any other protected areas that, that reach that sort of diverse range of, of different habitats. So you have the park itself includes 6,000 meter Andean peaks, but it also stretches all the way down to the Amazon Amazon Basin. And so because of that unique altitudinal range and the fact that it sits in the Amazon and the tropical Andes, that means that it's also probably the world's most biologically diverse protected area. And so that forms the centerpiece of what we call the Greater Madidi Tambopata landscape, which is actually a transboundary landscape between Bolivia and, and neighboring Peru. So incredibly important, obviously, for migration patterns and for movements of animals and wildlife, I would assume. Well, yes, but also as we think about the challenges of climate change, that altitudinal gradient and actually also the latitudinal gradient are both really important in terms of, you know, thinking about resilience of, of wildlife and biodiversity in the face of climate change, because, of course, you have that continuation of habitats and altitude which allows species to respond to what's going to happen and what's already happening in terms of climate change. So that makes it particularly valuable when we think about places that are important for climate change because it's not just Madidi National Park. Within that landscape, there are six national protected areas which are pretty much continuous, four in Bolivia and two in Peru. And so you put all that together and it's a huge area of more than 40,000 kilometers squared that is actually already designated as national protected area. Right. That's huge. That's that's very large. Absolutely. And so in this area, what is at stake protecting these regions? And what are some of the struggles that you face in rewilding and conserving these landscapes and um, these species in terms of just, I mean, you can kind of paint a picture of what does a day in the life look like? Or what are some of just the overarching issues that you're seeing in these areas that are so critical to the health of, you know, the region and the planet as a whole. Yeah, so so the Amazon in general is an area that, you know, is facing many challenges. We hear about it a lot on the when we think about social media or or, or on more traditional media platforms. And obviously, it's really important, the Amazon, from the perspective of, you know, from the global perspective in terms of how much forest, how much tropical forest is found in the Amazon and the importance of that forest from, from a climate change perspective. And also, of course, from a biodiversity perspective, because Latin America is particularly biodiverse, right? So you have much higher levels of diversity even than in, the, in some of the African and Asian rainforests. And so from wildlife, from biodiversity, from a climate perspective, it is, of course, important. But conservation, really, the challenge is, is always, you know, conservation is about working with people, right? So the good thing is that if we think about, you know, if we talk about Bolivia, if we talk about this specific landscape, or if we think about the Amazon as a whole, you know, there are lots of good things that have happened, right? So many of the Amazonian countries 
and Andean countries have already designated large percentages of their territory as national protected areas, or they have designated, along with regional or local governments, as sub-national protected areas. And of course, as well, very importantly, they've also recognized the indigenous rights over large tracts of land as well. And so actually, when you put all that together, you have quite a lot of area that's already been designated as what we might perceive as being very conservation-friendly spaces. But the challenge of that is that, yes, okay, there are lots of, there's a lot of area that's been designated, but the challenge is actually figuring out how to develop sustainable funding streams to support conservation efforts in those areas and to build basic management structures and capacities, an array of different types of actors how do we do that? And that's really what our work has been about, you know, for the last 25 years in that specific landscape that I've already mentioned, but also in other places that we're working in Bolivia, for example, we're working also in the largest wetland in the Amazon, which is called the Llanos de Mojos in the Beni department of Bolivia, which actually neighbors the greater Medidi Temple pattern landscape. And so in those areas too, it's the same, it's the same situation with variations. For example, in that, that area, there are many less national protected areas, but many more subnational protected areas. And in both landscapes, indigenous territories are incredibly important too to complement the protected areas, either through indigenous people supporting the protected areas, because in Bolivia, um, indigenous territories can overlap with national and subnational protected areas but also because they neighbor those areas and complement in terms of additional areas. So that's really been the main challenge for us in the face of an increasing diversity and intensity of threats. It's, you know, I, I loved what you initially said about it's about working with people and bringing people together to, I don't want to use the word solve these issues because we're going to have to be working towards solutions for a very long time. And it's really not about finding a solution, but finding a, in my opinion, a stable point where we can coexist in harmony with the environmental, the natural world around us. And that at Wild, we've always put an emphasis on working with a vast array of different actors, you know, different NGOs, different indigenous groups, different people from around the globe coming together. So I guess do you see a lot of enthusiasm within Bolivia and Peru and to come together and you know work in unison towards this? Do the indigenous communities that you work with, do they feel strongly about participating in the solutions and in finding solutions forward? How does that come into play? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think with all of these challenges, the only way really for us to think about dealing with them and, and recognizing what you're implying, which is that, you know, the dynamic changes, right? The, the world changes all the time and the threat dynamic changes all the time. And so we're constantly having to develop and think about capacities and research and, and development in terms of how to respond to those threats. However way you look at it, there is a growing recognition in the conservation community that we have to work together and we have to build sort of multi-institutional platforms and also really, you know, look to, to sort of more formal and we also have to look to recognizing more formally the importance of indigenous people and local communities, not just indigenous people, but also other types of local communities that at the end of the day, you know, 
conservation happens on the ground and on the ground the people who are there are the local communities and so you know going back to what i was saying a little bit earlier when a lot of our work when you know it starts off with helping you know we've assisted indigenous organizations in terms of providing legal support for them to secure land tenure but we've also worked very intensively intensively with them in terms of developing planning mechanisms and monitoring mechanisms and developing capacity within their local organizations but a lot of the actual Im- implementation comes down to working with local communities, the indigenous communities that those organizations represent, but working with those communities to sort of think about and develop natural resource management initiatives that can improve their livelihoods, because that's what it comes down to. Conservation has to be about, yes, conserving biodiversity and wildlife, but also providing economic alternatives and livelihood options for for local people. And in places where the the populate the human population density is actually relatively low, it's about being imaginative and thinking about okay, you know, what are the resources here that can that can contribute to to local economies, and that's super important because you know the indigenous people they have been you know the protected areas. If we think about Madidi National Park, they have been the biggest defenders of that park, along with, of course, the park guards. And but that's the park guards' job, right? As they are our the park guards are always, you know, I'm always going to say this: they're our heroes, right? But they're the real heroes. But the indigenous people too, because they have the communities have on many occasions made real efforts to defend the park in the face of some of the bigger threats. And so there's no question about their commitment in terms of the environment and in terms of thinking about, you know, the sustainability of their actions and and what happens in these spaces. And so, you know, that's been a real privilege for for all of us working on the team to to be be able to accompany and partner and, and provide technical support to those communities and to those indigenous organizations. What you say makes so much sense. That This is their home. They're protecting this area because it's where they're from. It's their home. This is These are their roots. This is what they know. It makes sense that they would feel a sense of passion to protect that. And it seems like it would be a kind of a wonderful learning experience for both parties, for you coming in as and all of the people who come in and who help um, and who are trying to find solutions. Because I don't want to just chalk it up to WCS because there might be other people that you're working with. And I'm sure that there are, of course. And it's it must be a nice kind of give and take of information, of learning how to work together. And I'm sure you've probably learned a lot about this area that I would assume you're not from because you don't you have an accent that is not from South America, but that I'm sure you've come to love and grow and and, and you know you now know so much about it just from what you've also learned from the indigenous people there and the local communities as well. Is there a nugget of information or a story or something that you can recall kind of where you where you learned something from their knowledge and their understanding of the land that you hadn't necessarily considered before. And, you know, because our perspective is limited coming in as outsiders into this place that's not necessarily our own. 
all the time, right? So I alluded to the idea that there's a, a, a you know really significant cultural diversity in Bolivia, and that as a nation, yes, depending on how you want to define it, but more than 36 indigenous peoples in in the country, right? And so in that particular landscape, and actually also in the Llanos de Mojos landscape, there are n- a number of different indigenous peoples that we work with. And so, yeah, of course, they have and are the holders of, of extraordinary knowledge in all sorts of, you know, in all sorts of ways. So, you know, right now, for example, when we're, you know, we're, we're sort of busy update, helping them update their sort of life plans. And one of the things that we're incorporating is specific planning on climate change, right? And thinking about resilience and documenting the changes that they are noting in terms of, you know, things like plant phenology, tree phenology, but also, you know, water levels, seasonality, those sorts of things, which are really important to to sort of specifically consider now within their planning mechanisms, because, you know, that that's something that's happening. But, you know, there are all sorts of things about wildlife. So, you know, yes, I, I am not Bolivian. I am from the United Kingdom. I'm English. Walking through the forest with indigenous people and just talking to them about about the different plants and animals that you see is an absolute pleasure, right? I mean, it's a cliche, but it it really is a dream come true. And and there and all the time, there are concrete pieces of information about about ecology, about behaviour. You know, there are many species that you can see relatively easily and you can learn about therefore very relatively easily but there are very many rare species that it's very difficult to observe and so you know they are often a really important source of information for those species i, I can give you a specific one which is kind of you know it which is fascinating so in the amazonian forests one of the most dramatic things that can happen to you as a wildlife biologist is come across a large herd of white-lipped peccaries. They are pig-like animals that, and in this specific species, white-lipped peccaries, they herd in groups of between, they can be between two and two, uh, two and three hundred animals. And they're, you know, they're sort of 40, 50 kilos each. So that is a dramatic experience, both from, from you know, visually, but mostly, you know, in terms of the sounds that they make, because, you know, you can hear them from quite a long way off because they eat all sorts of things, but they're very much palm fruit specialists. And so they crack, they crack the palm nuts and you can hear them and they, and because there's so many of them. I was going to say, I think it, uh, it might create like a symphony or an orchestra of sound with two or three hundred of them. And then, then there's the smell as well, which is, you know, which some people don't like. I, I, I've grown. I, I, I've grown quite fond of it. Anyway, they're a super abundant ungulate. They're really, really important ecologically. They are the principal prey of jaguars, for example, in the forest. They are also really important for indigenous people because they are one of the main um, subsistence prey species for them. And so, you know, they're they're super important, and they're also incredibly important for the ecology of the forest for all sorts of reasons. We've just recently documented them disappearing from the forest. We had super abundant presence of this species in one of our long-term, in a couple of our long-term monitoring sites, and they've all disappeared very suddenly. And so the question is why, how, what? And it seems like maybe they left because there was a fruiting failure. 
and that uh, and they haven't come back yet they've been away for five years and the forest has changed completely because now it used to be really open now it's really really dense because they are ecological engineers but the indigenous people in the area that are Kana have a number of stories about peccaries and they talk about them, you know, in their mythology, they talk about the fact that peccaries also gather around salt licks, right? They're really, they create areas where they can, but where they can get um, minerals from the soil and they open them up and other species use them. And so the indigenous people have these mythologies where they say that the peccaries get swallowed by the earth and disappear and then come back all of a sudden. And so it's like indigenous stories that relate to what we're now documenting in terms of how they respond to phenology. So there's all sorts of all sorts of things. But of course it's uh it's a it's a real it's a real kick to spend time with people who are incredibly knowledgeable knowledgeable about nature. Right. Well and you and you see where the overlap in in understanding of the cycles of the ways that things are working, you know, in nature, of course they might not have the words or not the words, but, and I don't want to say the understanding either because it's just a different way of understanding, you know, why the species might be moving out for a certain period of time and then coming back in. But it's so interesting to see the overlap in the observation of that as well and just how different the observations are, but also quite similar, right? That's a wonderful, fascinating story. I love that. And just is there a nugget of wisdom that you could share too about as an outsider coming in, what would be the one tip that you, if you could share one tip with our audience about how to successfully work with indigenous peoples and locals, local communities, what would you say is the kind of the number one thing that is important to remember as you're doing that? I think the most important thing is to listen because, you know, when we started working 25 years ago, you know, we had the idea from things that some of our, you know, some of our colleagues that we'd worked with before had been doing in other places. We had the idea that maybe we would work with the indigenous people to, to sort of help them think about sustainable management of different resources. But very quickly, they sort of, they said to us, yeah, that's all great. And of course, we want to do that. But if we really want this to be sustainable then we need to actually establish our legal rights and tenure of this land right and we also need to think about how we're gonna manage it and we also need to think about what are the other priorities for the communities and of course as a conservation organization you know there's a limit to how much we can actually do in terms of not just in terms of resources but more in terms of what our expertise are i mean we you, we're not going to get involved in in sort of formal education and health and 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 sanitation you know we we do actually touch on both of those things kind of peripherally through through things but not like the big chunk of investment that is required for that but it is important to listen and it is important to then think about how can we broaden our our sort of proposal writing and and sort of donor engagement in order to be able to respond to those priorities. So I do think the main thing is you have to listen. You have to be prepared that there may be things that you aren't thinking about that they are and that are super important. And I think that's a real lesson learned. Right. And it's it's a huge part of being able to work together with people from all different backgrounds, right? That was wonderful. I, I wholeheartedly agree. And so obviously another part 
of working together is also getting people who are a little bit more urban into wilderness, wildlife, and all sorts of things. And Julia and I were talking about how La Paz, Bolivia won the City Nature Challenge, and we at Wild used to partake in that, and Boulder, obviously, which is where we're located, does that too. And I'd love to hear more about that and how that went and how you get people who are a little bit more urban to be very excited about partaking in something like that. Actually, it's linked, right? So, so sort of for, for 15 years, we, we put all of our effort into working in those landscapes at a local level, you know, working with building, you know, partnerships with an array of different indigenous communities, organizations, municipalities, the protected areas themselves, other institutions, scientific and academic, but also NGOs, building a whole, you know, whole approach to implementing conservation, landscape scale conservation, working with all those different communities about on, on the management of all sorts of different resources, right? So coffee, chocolate, you know, management of vicuña, all sorts of things. But we sort of realized about a decade ago that that there was this other audience that we needed to engage because the world is becoming more and more urban, right? There's already 80% of people already live in cities and in 10, 15, 20 years' time, it's going to be 90%. And Bolivia is no different, right? It's slightly less, but it's the same trajectory. And so you have this massive majority who are living in an urban setting. And in Bolivia, for example, very few people realize that Bolivia had has the world's most biologically diverse protected area, Medidi. And so we started up an initiative called Identidad Medidi, which was, on the one hand, a scientific expedition to document that biodiversity, but it was mainly really a communication campaign to inform and, and, and sort of, you know, get the Bolivian public excited about the fact that, you know, the world's most biologically diverse protected area is in Bolivia. And we focused particularly on La Paz. And as we were doing that, we engaged in, with all sorts of different audiences, including schools. I was really lucky to be invited to a National Geographic meeting in Mexico to do, about citizen science. And, and I saw a presentation about City Nature Challenge, and it just, I just realized that's what we have to do next. That, because we were thinking, how can we continue to engage with the schools and how can we continue to how can, how can we continue to get to sort of work with that new audience that we had generated through this social media com- campaign in Identidad Mediri which is why we were invited to that meeting how could we do it and I saw that presentation and I just went that's what we've got to do so I really think that you know we have to think about how to engage with the urban majority how can we get them Involved because one of the things we saw was that the Identidad Madidi initiative was really about, you know, just getting the message out there. But we got a lot of people writing back to us saying, What can we do? And so it was like, Okay, well, there's a couple of things that we're thinking about that, you know, would be interesting. One of them is citizen science. And so the City Nature Challenge is just an absolutely fantastic way of getting people who want to participate to be able to participate and of course it's a friendly competition but it gets people fired up and so once when we did that first of all in 2019 you know La Paz did really well I think we came second 
and then it was just you know last year and the and and this year it was just you know it was crazy and and of course Lapaz won both times and it's really generated a whole other community of people who are interested in thinking about how to support conservation and and I think that's really important and will become more and more important in the future. Right, and just because these individuals live in urban settings doesn't mean that they can't contribute in some way to greater conservation goals elsewhere or even within the boundaries of their city. You know, just because we've set up a city doesn't mean that wildlife necessarily stays out of it. So it's a it's a very interesting audience to tap into. And I guess just a, a question because it's, it's on my mind and I'm fascinated by this. Do you find that a lot of these individuals, even if they're staying in cities, are they volunteering for more projects outside of the cities? Or how do you see their passion for this friendly competition that kind of ignites a fire of this is interesting and I'm passionate about continuing this sort of work. How do you see that carrying over? Yeah. So, you know, there are all sorts of ways to measure it, right? So, yeah, okay, so we won the City Nature Challenge, which is great and it's fantastic. But what, what really got to me was after we did it the, the first time, it's a whole, right, it's a, I mean, you know, WCS is there, but there's a, an organizing, organizing committee with all sorts of Bolivian institutions participating and then beyond that, there are a whole nother sort of level of participation where we, like, for example, this year, we had more than 50 different organizations and institutions participating, plus more than 50 schools. So it's a huge platform. It's a huge movement. But one of the things that I really liked was after the first time, two or three of the sort of citizen groups, environmental groups in the city that participated came to me and said after after the city nature challenge our membership went and so now they've got like and it's growing so that they've got increased engagement and people are getting involved and it's not just within the city because people do sort of travel out outside of the city so another really interesting way that people can help is of course visiting places and supporting tourism supporting protected areas and indigenous territories through ecotourism or or other kinds of tourism and you know, in Bolivia, there was a very, very sort of incipient level of sort of national tourism, and that's growing and growing now, partly because of the pandemic, actually, but also because of these sorts of initiative. And so we have to harness that too. And just going back to that link, another really interesting way that we're, we're currently exploring, and I really think is another way that people living in cities can really think about how they might want to contribute to conservation is that many of those communities that we work with in the landscapes they're incredibly isolated and have therefore got real challenges in terms of market costs right the costs that they incur in terms of getting their products to market and then their products are often really high quality and they of course have this incredible backstory with all these different elements of value, we can think about the value of the product in itself, but also the kind of cultural value, the environmental value, the social value that's behind that. And so one way that we're trying to sort of help those communities is actually developing markets in the cities with these urban audiences that want to contribute and getting them to think about how they can contribute by supporting those communities through the purchase of their products and their goods. And that's that's a whole other thing that we're doing. And, you know, working with local restaurants, actually, some of the some of the celebrity chefs to sort of promote those products. No, it's it's fascinating. I'm absolutely inspired 
by the work that you're doing on so many levels, because clearly this is not just one straightforward project. There are so many levels that you're taking into consideration, which is fantastic, but also so necessary for long-term sustainable change that will create impact beyond belief. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for taking the time to chat with us. And, you know, one of my final questions was, what's a tip that you can give our audience on how to act for conservation in nature? But you sort of exactly just did that with your response, which was wonderful. They're easy takeaways, you know, that's something that people can do without having to devote their entire life to conservation. So thank you for giving us those pointers. That was wonderful. And I think it'll just leave people inspired to act a little bit and to consider what they can do for a better future. My final, final question for you before I open the floor for anything else that you'd like to chat about or any other more points that you'd like to cover. And we ask our guests these questions, but why do you have hope? And, you know, in terms of why do you have hope to continue on into this work and what kind of future do you see for our planet and for us? Yeah, I think we're constantly bombarded with negativity and about the environment. And I think that's important. I do think that it is, of course, important to get those stories out there. But I also think that there isn't enough made of the progress that there has, that there has been, right? So if I say, you know, that almost 50% of the Amazon basin has already been designated as either protected area, national, subnational, or indigenous territory, that's actually incredible. There's no other major forest, well, maybe, I guess, the boreal forests of Canada, maybe, okay. But in terms of rainforests and, and hot, you know, there's no other forest where that's the case. And of course, there's still a challenge there in terms of how to make those units work. And of course, you know, we have to recognize that, the you know, the climate experts and, uh, you know, sort of are recommending that that in order for the Amazon to retain its sort of climate cycle, we, we, we need to be thinking of, uh, between 70 to 80% of the forest is retained. But if you think about it, the government and the societies of those nations have already made huge commitments. And I think that needs to be reported more. And in the same way, you know, it's easy to get paralyzed by the fear and, and worry about what's happening. But there are really easy steps that we can make to support conservation we don't you know you don't have to dedicate your whole life to it but you can make decisions that make very concrete differences to people and i think if i was sending a message it would be that just in terms of the different portions of society that i've had the privilege and honor to work with over the last 25 years you know whether it's indigenous communities whether it's the park gods or whether it's interacting with people here in the city that's what gives me hope because you see their commitment and their passion and imagination. And that's that's what keeps us going. Thank you so much, Rob. That was wonderful. And I love having these conversations and getting to know about people's experiences and work because it's fascinating. And um, it leaves me filled with hope because like you said, there's a lot of negativity in our world. And it's time that we kind of start sh shedding a little bit of light on the hope that we see and the success stories that we're seeing, because there's incredible work that's being done. And you're a prime example of that. And the work that you're doing is a wonderful example of that. So thank you for spending this time with us and for sharing your stories with our audience. We could not be more grateful. If there's anything else you'd like to cover, the floor is yours. We can keep chatting. 
But uh, I, I do want to say thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us. No, thank you very much. And uh, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Find us on social media through the Wild Foundation. And if you're feeling inspired, don't hesitate to share this podcast with those around you and maybe even give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate the support more than you know, and it's that support that allows our work to continue and evolve.